This morning we will cover message four from an outline for this little conference. But I'd like to review substantially what we've already covered and then introduce, uh, I would say, the most decisive experiential aspect of the general subject, which is living in the reality of the kingdom in order to participate in the manifestation of the kingdom. By the manifestation of the kingdom, we mean that when the Lord Jesus comes back, the age, the stage in which we're living now will change drastically. We will no longer be in the age of the church and no longer be in the age of grace and also no longer be in the age of mystery. These three things characterize the present age in which we are in according to God. It's the age in which Christ is building the church. It's an age of grace where the Lord has a heart full of grace toward everyone, to anyone that recognizes the need for it. But what he is doing in this age is invisible. It is mysterious. Yet it's profoundly real. All of us believe in the Lord Jesus. We've never seen him. All of us love the Lord, but we've never seen him. We believed into him. We received him. He entered into us, into our spirit. But all of this is invisible, yet it's real. But when the Lord comes back, what has been mysterious will be visible, will be manifested. He will come forth in glory with the overcomers, the victorious believers, also in glory. Human government will be terminated. The money system will be terminated. There will be tremendous change in the physical environment as the curse is largely released. And there's a restoration of nature as God intended. And the Lord will establish his throne in Jerusalem and the co-kings will be dispersed throughout the earth to reign over the nations, over the people. That is the manifestation. But in order for there to be a manifestation, there must be something real that is to be disclosed. Otherwise, it's a meaningless term. It's empty. Manifest what? There's nothing to make known. 
So the reality is what we call the reality of the kingdom of God. Now this phrase, the kingdom of God, in the Bible, has two basic meanings. First, it denotes God's rule over the entire creation, the whole universe, all the spiritual beings in it, and all the human beings on the earth. We use the word objective because that is an outward kingdom. It's very real. Now, why is it necessary for God to have a kingdom? One definition of the kingdom of God is that it is the realm in which God's will is carried out. It is a realm in which God can do whatever he desires without any resistance. And without this realm, there's no sphere for him to carry out his will. And there is no sphere for him to manifest his glory. So by nature, he is the ruler, the sovereign God. So when the sovereign God produces something, what he produces or creates is under his rule by nature. It's only normal. But in the pre-Adamic age, which could have been billions of years ago, a rebellion took place involving angels and the beings on earth that had spirits. And Satan established the principle of rebellion and further inaugurated his own kingdom which exists today. So in Genesis 1, we have a record of creation, but primarily of restoration. Creation and restoration. So the ones God created didn't know. God knew there was a lot of prehistory to this. So there is the earth. And the man and the woman are on the earth, given a commission. You are created in the image of God to express him. And also you will have dominion over the earth. That is the exercise of God's governmental authority. And then the writer of Genesis says, you'll have dominion over the earth. And subdue it. The word subdue is very significant. There is something that must not only be defeated, but subdued. That indicates an enemy, a hostile force, a counter kingdom, illegally usurping the earth. 
Well, the man created by God disobeyed God. It is the man, not the woman, who bears the responsibility. That's why the New Testament says the first man, Adam, sinned. He did it deliberately, willfully, knowingly. He wasn't deceived. Then the rebellious element in Satan was injected into human beings. And everyone is born with it. It's just transmitted. It's in our flesh. We're all the same. Then what what is the Lord going to do? Well, he sent the second man, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And this second man fulfilled God's eternal purpose by expressing God and representing God. And this brings us to the central point. He brought the kingdom to the earth. He is the king. They mocked him, those that crucified him, but Pilate nevertheless wrote it and had it nailed to the cross. Jesus, king of the Jews. And he was not only the king, but according to his own word in Luke 17, he is actually the kingdom itself. The Lord said, the kingdom of God is among you. And who and what was among them? It was the Lord himself. So he is the king and he is the kingdom. In the second sense, as a realm of life. So we speak of the plant kingdom, animal kingdom, and human kingdom. They are not governmental Realms. They are life realms. So all the plants make up the plant kingdom, the same with animals and humans. The kingdom of God as a realm of life is the same in principle. But at the beginning, only God himself has this life. But we know from John 3... If we believe into the Son of God, we will receive eternal life by being born of the Spirit and born of water, baptism, so that we may enter into the kingdom of God. So actually, every genuine believer, wherever she or he may be, in whatever religious group they may be, every genuine believer who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, justified by grace through faith, regenerated by the Spirit, is in the kingdom of God. I have no idea what the percentage is of the believers who realize this. I would estimate it's way less than 1% who have this realization. 
And later, when I come to Roman numeral 2 on the outline, I'll explain the major reason why the deception that dominates the Christian world. So we have been born into the kingdom of God, whether we know it or not, or whether we like it or not. So let me draw a parallel with something obvious. That's human life. None of us gave our consent to be born. Right? There was no pre-birth consultation. We did not exist as spirits or souls before we were born. The Lord didn't send an angel, would you like to be a human being? Some, like this person AOC, may say, no. The climate's too bad. The world's going to end in 12 years. I don't want to be a human being on the earth. But there's no such thing. We were all born. And then our parents had this huge responsibility to train us to live a human life on the earth. What an awesome responsibility. The infant doesn't know who she is. Then the little one grows and he realizes, there are other people, they're big people. Who are they? Mama. That should be the first word. (laughs) All she's gone through. That should be the first word. Daddy. Then the child realizes I'm in a family. And then I go to school and there are all kinds of other people. Well, the fact is, in eternity past, God chose us to be holy. Ephesians 1.4 He predestinated us unto sonship. Ephesians 1.5 Without asking us for our consent at all, He has determined our eternal destiny, which will be the holy city, New Jerusalem, as a person. Then we were born. Then at the time appointed by God, he called us through the gospel. And by various means, we believed and we were saved and we were born of God. But the vast majority do not know this. And if we are sincere and honest, And humbled before the Lord. I think we ourselves would need to admit. I really don't know how to live here. I hardly understand where I am. But now the word is going to keep coming. Through the Lord's ministry. Because the Lord himself is burdened for this. Right now. And will be burdened for a number of months to come to minister along this line to us. Because God must have this kingdom. So
So we are considering living in the reality of the kingdom. This was in the first message. And the reality of the kingdom is inward. It is Christ himself as reality increasingly saturating our being, spreading throughout our being. He is the king. He is the kingdom. He sowed himself as a seed of the kingdom. The seed grows. The kingdom increases. That's the reality. But now, I come to an exceedingly important matter. And this matter will point out to you the Lord's direction in his, in his recovery as it relates to each one of us. There is a recovery taking place in each one of us. But what is that? When God created human beings, the first man was in paradise in direct contact with God. Direct. He had a spirit along with soul and body. And the spirit has three main functions. Conscience, intuition, the ability to know directly, and fellowship. The conscience was not activated in a negative sense because there was no sin. And the man did not know good or evil. He only knew God. God would appear. God would speak. This was the direct rule of God through the intuition and fellowship of the human spirit. It's by the intuition our spirit can know God. It's by the function of fellowship that our spirit can contact God, experience Him, be one with Him, then to enjoy Him. And God warned this man, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He implied you can eat of the tree of life. If he had eaten of the tree of life, the divine life would have entered into him and he would have been regenerated. And actually, we need to be regenerated, born of the Spirit, not mainly because of sin, but mainly because we are simply human and do not have the divine life and therefore, we can only express what a human being is. We need the divine life in order to express God and represent Him. But when sin came in, man had the knowledge of good and evil. Now, he can decide for himself. I think this is right. I think this is wrong. And he fell from the direct rule of God to the rule of the conscience. 
he was thrust out of paradise. And then a period of time began as the age of the conscience. There was no human government. But hardly anyone cared for the conscience. Only a few. So God decided to annihilate that entire population of the earth, except Noah and his family. Because they lived to God in their conscience. No doubt there were others who did the same, but they didn't pay attention to Noah's word of righteousness. So they perished with, with their generation. And the same thing will happen all over the earth before the Lord comes. And it will happen among believers. Because the Lord said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And there is a spiritual battle raging over those who are alert for all of us, but especially for the young people to be saved from this generation. All of the church kids, they end up being eternally saved and baptized mainly when they're 11 or 12. But the Bible also speaks of being saved from this crooked and perverted generation. But many of them love the world. They love the things of the world. They love this generation. And if they have a church life, it will be on their terms. So much time for the church. So much time for this and that. The Lord is building up an ark, the corporate Christ, the church, and those who participate in the building will enter into the coming kingdom. Those who do not will pass through the judgment on this generation. And then they will make up during the kingdom age for the time they wasted. So the Lord is burdened to have the reality of the kingdom. And we pointed out, yes, when we're in the mingled spirit, we're in the reality of the kingdom. And we pointed out that Christ himself is the reality of the kingdom. Now we need to see something extremely decisive. So we are tracing the fall from the direct rule of God to the conscience. The human beings, they cannot have order in society if they live by the conscience. So after Noah exited the ark, God established human government. And he made it very clear. God made it very clear. Despite the amoral government of governor of California. God said, 
If a man slays human blood, by man he will be slain. There will be a government, a human government, with laws. And God established this government so there could be some kind of order on the earth that enables him to carry out his purpose with his people who love him. So human government is necessary, but it's corrupt. There's a lot of injustice there. Some of us, let's just say 60 plus, and our memory is keen, compare the situation in Washington, D.C. with what it was 30 or 40 years ago, you will realize indescribable degradation. And I will boldly use the language God gave to Daniel when he showed him human government. They were beasts. It's bestial. The way people speak. What they say online. Yet, the government has to be here. And the New Testament requires that we live properly under the government. We pay our taxes, etc., etc. Then the gospel of the kingdom comes to us. Fallen human beings with an element of rebellion. And we receive the life of the kingdom. We receive the king himself. The kingdom enters into us. And now a journey, an inward journey starts. For us to be personally recovered. So that in the Lord's recovery as a whole, the Lord can move on. So one thing that should happen when someone is saved, once we have the assurance of salvation, we clear the past. This is at the very beginning of the book, The Experience of Life. You clear the past. The Lord enlightens us of anything we have to make right. You stole this, you need to return it. You cheated on this, You need to make it right. We're not doing this in order to be saved. We're doing this because we have been saved. And the Lord wants to grow in us. So he will enlighten us concerning those things he wants us to clear. Then we can consecrate to the Lord. Now we're in the second stage of the experience of life. We consecrate, we give the Lord permission to work in us and to direct our lives. Then he shows us what sin is and trains us to deal with sin. He shows us what the world is and trains us to deal with the world. Then there's a turn Dealing with the conscience. We shouldn't mainly be governed 
by the police, by human government. We should be governed by our conscience. I shouldn't have to have a vehicle with the dome on top, with lights flashing, and then a voice on a megaphone saying, pull over. I shouldn't have to need that to control the speed at which I drive on the freeways in Los Angeles. There should be something inward. So this is a very necessary stage to learn to live by our conscience, to deal with our conscience, so that we will have a good conscience that is no offense Your conscience is at peace. Then we advance to have a pure conscience. That is a conscience that testifies you seek God and God alone. Paul in Acts uh, was on a certain trial there in a religious court. And he said something Someone nearby slapped him. And Paul rebuked him strongly. And then someone said, is that the way you speak to the high priest? Paul said, I didn't know he was the high priest. It's written, you shall not speak evil of your leaders. So he violated his conscience. Right away he cleared it. So we can never depart from the need to care for our conscience. But, and this but, the B in this but is gigantic. And I mentioned this at breakfast this morning. This is my sincere feeling. Only the Lord knows. For every brother or sister in the local churches, in the Lord's recovery, who is living the life of a God-man, there are likely hundreds who continue to live the life of a good man. They stop with the conscience. They stop. They think this is it. I remember this man has gone to be with the Lord. I mentioned his name. John Ingalls giving a message on Lord's Day morning saying how I'm dealing with my conscience. Dealing with it. And he kept on dealing with it till he became dissenting. And a verse came to him regarding what he was doing. He strained out gnats and swallowed a camel. Led rebellion against the ministry of the age. Established a second Lord's Table meeting in Anaheim. Less than a mile away from the meeting hall on Ball Road. So, so many dear brothers and sisters end up, they are ethical. 
very ethical and moral. Their, their morality is pure. But actually, an atheist can be ethical, and there are some. And an atheist can be moral, and there are some. So if we stop here, the Lord has no way. He just has a flock of good people. So in this very chapter, I recommend this section to you. In the book, The Experience of Life, the chapter on dealing with the conscience, Brotherly has a section, a few pages, which is the source of what I'm sharing with you. We fell from the direct rule of God to the conscience, from the conscience to human government, and actually many have a problem with human government. Then the gospel comes to us, and the inward recovery begins. <clears throat> and we need to be right with the government. We will obey the government unless they require us to say or do something contrary to Christ. And we will not do that. We'll accept the consequences, but we're not going to do that. And then we're led to deal with sin and the world. And to care for our conscience. Job was like this. According to him, my conscience is fine. I'm going to argue with God. I'm going to see him in court. I'm going to prove that I'm righteous. I'm a man of integrity. He didn't know he was not under the direct rule of God. So the Lord needs to work in us through the salvation in life to bring us back inwardly to the direct rule of God. Now, this is the heart of the message this morning. Then we'll go to the outline once I summarize messages two and three. This means that our conscience will always be functioning, but not primarily negatively saying this is wrong, you need to clear this, clear this up. But positively affirming, affirming we're at peace with God. There are no problems. Then our intuition and our fellowship functions emerge strongly. We just know the Lord. We know His heart. We know His intention. His mind, His will for us, we can know. He communicates this. We are in direct fellowship with Him. This is taking place in the realm of our spirit, with, supported by the conscience, but with the exercise of the intuition and fellowship. Now, what is, the, what is it like experientially? Okay. I share the next part as a learner. But I can share with you what I've been learning is real. But I'm still a learner. I'm not where Paul was or where Brother Nee was or Brother Lee was. I'm a learner. What is it like when 
We are under the Lord's direct rule. The Lord himself gave us a, a strong indication. You read the very end of Matthew 16. The Lord says, there are some here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. Then in a parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord says, there are some here who will not see death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, some scholars and theologians, many of them actually, not having any light, they say, oh, this means the Lord will come a second time with the kingdom before these people die. That's not what the context indicates. Six days later, the Lord led Peter, James, and John with him to the top of a mountain. And according to Luke's version, the Lord was praying and he was transfigured before them. His garments became dazzling white and his face was shining like the sun. This is the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the kingdom of God coming in power. It's a glimpse. The glory that was hidden in the Lord was now manifested. So we need to put this together. His shining face, His transfigured body, this is the King in His kingdom. Then, the glory had to return inwardly and the Lord told the three disciples, don't talk about this until the Son of Man has been resurrected. Because Christ's resurrection was his glorification. Acts 24, Luke 24, 26, should not the Son of, should not Christ have suffered and entered into his glory. So Brother Lee's message on this, given in 1971 in the book, The Kingdom, changed my life forever. Then he gave this definition. The kingdom is Jesus shining over you. It's the inward shining. 2 Corinthians 4.6 The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. 3.18, we all with unveiled face behold and reflect the glory of the Lord. We turn inwardly, we behold Him as right now I'm doing, we may do. And Jesus is shining inwardly on us. That is the realm of light. He rules by light. By shining. So as the Lord recovers us personally, we will experience more 
of this inward shining, indescribably delightful, pleasant, but it also conveys the Lord's mind, his will, his intention to shine in us. This is at a much higher level than just having peace in your conscience. You're at peace. This is good. This is the necessary stage. But, compare that. That's in the holy place or even the outer court. Compare being in the holy of holies. Standing on the propitiation cover in the glory of God. Having face-to-face fellowship with the Lord speaking from between the cherubim. This is where we're all headed. I assure you. One characteristic of God is He always completes what He starts. He's thorough. And then a matter closely related to this to show how Paul lived this way. And I hope you wouldn't be distracted when I mention the verse in the note. I would ask you to not read it now. But if the shining Jesus tells you to read it, then I will back off from that. <laughs> but in Second Corinthians 2, the brother that had to be removed from the fellowship of the church in 1 Corinthians is being restored. And the saints in Corinth had the sense that he really repented and he can be restored. And they're fellowshipping with Paul. And Paul is entering into this fellowship. And then in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, I forgive. If I forgive anything, I do so. This is what our version says. In the person of Jesus Christ. But you look at the note. Literally, the Greek word for person is the word for face. Used in 4.6. Face. And even more specific, it refers to the area around the eyes. That we may call the index. And what a person may do in an intimate relationship, this can happen. No words are spoken. You communicate by the index of your eyes how you feel, what you think. And the Lord, Paul, even in the matter of forgiveness, he didn't act on his own. Like, oh yeah, I feel so happy. I'll do it. Sure, I'll do it. No. He is under the direct rule of God. He was living in 2 Corinthians 3, 18 and 4, 6. He's beholding the glory of the Lord. He has eye contact with the Lord. And he can look into the Lord's index and the Lord is saying, I forgive him. Forgive him. This is where we're headed. Paul is not some kind of super spiritual person that we can just kind of appreciate 
and then accept the lie of the enemy will never be that. Let's consider, sometimes it's good to go to the end of the book to see how it ends. So let's go to the end of the book. Revelation 22. In verses 1 and 2, you have the Lamb, the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river of water of life flowing from that throne. The tree of life growing in the river. Then you have verse 4, referring to all of us. They shall see his face. All of us will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads, indicating we're the same as he is. Then in the next verse, verse 5, there'll be no need for light. This is in New Jerusalem. No need of the sun or the moon or any artificial light. For the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. This is where we're headed. At the end of the thousand year kingdom, all the believers throughout all the ages will be matured, transformed, perfected, built up, glorified. We will all be the same. We will all be as priests. Seeing his face, And he he will be shining in us. His shining is his reigning. But there are nations on the new earth. We reign over them. So then we reign over all the people on the earth who are not regenerated, but are the human beings according to God's original creation without sin. So this is where we're going. This is set from eternity past. This is going to happen. But the new Jerusalem, about which I'm speaking, will be manifested in two stages. The second stage I'm just referring to is the new heaven and the new earth in eternity. The first stage will be the coming age of the kingdom. The overcomers, who are the co-kings, who are the bride of Christ, they will be the new Jerusalem, as I just described, in that age. The Lord willing, two weeks from now, We'll have a conference in Atlanta showing from the Lord speaking to the church in Philadelphia that the overcomers have the name of God, the name of Christ, and the name of the New Jerusalem written on them. They become a pillar because in their church life they become the New Jerusalem now so they will be manifested as the new Jerusalem in the coming age, whereas those who did not live in the kingdom in reality now will learn and 
summer school, whatever you want to call it, one day, one day in summer school, but it happens to be a thousand years, everyone will be perfected. So this is the most central matter. And it's with this that we'll open up the elders' training. A training on the development of the kingdom of God in the Christian life and the church life. For the Lord to work to bring a righteous, ethical, upright, moral person from the rule of the conscience to the direct rule of God is quite an endeavor. Because those that are righteous, they're good, they're ethical, they're moral, they're, quote, spiritual, they don't know how much they have built up the self. How much? And the Lord, cover your ears and cover me. This is why we have the book of Job. Job was a righteous man. The Lord could tell Satan, there's none like him on the earth. But God knew he wasn't a God-man. I must touch all that he has built up in himself. Then remake him, reconstitute him into a God-man. So he let certain things happen. Then eventually when all the companions stopped their talk, God himself came in, spoke again and again to Job. And Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. I see you now directly. Because now the direct rule is starting. And therefore, I abhor myself. On the, on, on the one hand, I wish I could spare you some of the experiences that you need to have to be brought from the rule of the conscience to the direct rule of God. But far more on the other hand, I will minister this. I will fight for this. And I will join my partner to pray for this. Because this will be an indescribable breakthrough in your life right here and right now. What kind of husband would you be? What kind of wife? What kind of parent? What kind of grandparent? What kind of leading one? What kind of serving one? You just imagine serving with the children. They have no idea. They're serving under a brother or sister who's living under the shining of Jesus. We're infusing them, infusing them with this element. They'll long remember this, this atmosphere. So this is the reality of the kingdom. In the second message... We connected, as the Lord does, the kingdom with righteousness. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The coming age will be the age of righteousness. 
When we believed into the Lord, we, like the prodigal son, received a robe, spiritually speaking. That is Christ as our righteousness. To be approved by God. So all of us have this robe. Everyone here. There's just a white robe on all of us. We have the right to be at the Lord's table because of the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of God. But to be in the wedding feast, we need a wedding garment. And that's a different garment. The bride has made herself ready. She has this garment composed of righteousnesses. That is the result of a life in the Spirit that expresses Christ and His righteousness through our soul. Those who don't have the wedding garment cannot be admitted. So part of the reality of being in the kingdom is experiencing Christ as our subjective righteousness, as the Spirit He lives in us. When we are one with Him and let Him live, He shines through us. That shining is His righteousness. And we will then be right with everyone, with everything, with every matter. So if I'm living this way, and I'm in traffic, I'm driving at the speed of traffic, someone cuts in front of me, and now we're almost bumper to bumper, and instead of doing this or that, this or that, you know what the this and that's are. If I'm under the shining of Jesus, I just tap the brake and let him go. But I'm not going to lose you. I'm not going to lose your presence again over someone like this. I'll just let him go. Okay, no matter where you are this morning, we're all going to end up in the same place. We're going to end up in Revelation 22. The only option we have is not whether this happens, it's when it happens. So I recommend not option B, which is later, I recommend option A, which is here and now. Well, then you may wonder, then how do I activate option A? Some may think, okay, I will consecrate to the Lord. I'll come to the microphone. I consecrate myself to live under the direct rule of God. Well, that's not a consecration. Consecration is allowing God to work in you. That's a promise that you will not be able to fulfill by the end of the day. By the end of the day. The Lord doesn't want you to make promises you can't keep. But he wants you to make a decision. Lord, I choose option A. Please give me the experiences that I need. To be in the reality of the kingdom today. And to being prepared to prepare my wedding garment, the garment of the kingdom feast today. Lord, you know how to do this. And he would say, I certainly do. 
It's in my heart to reproduce myself in you. It's in my heart to make you my counterpart. My bride will be my counterpart. I want co-kings. Co-kings are just like me, except for the Godhead. So surely, surely I will honor your decision. Then, Lord, what's my part? Okay. Your part is to love me, to turn your heart to me, to experience me, to enjoy me, to receive my dispensing, and to learn to walk according to the Spirit. And then this leads to last night's message, which is on the kingdom and the church. The gospel in the New Testament is the gospel of the kingdom. There's no gospel of the church. But the gospel of the kingdom releases the life of God. And when we are born of God, we enter into the kingdom of God. But in Jerusalem in Acts, they entered the church. Because the church today is the practicality of the kingdom. And the kingdom is the reality of the church. And the goal of the church is to bring in the kingdom of God in manifestation. And for this, we need the building. And the building is the corporate expression of the triune God. Now for about 25 minutes, we'll go through outline four. The kingdom of God and the building of God. So what is the building? It is, and I'm looking for the ultimate answer. The initial answer is the building up of the house of God. The Father's house mentioned in John 14. The Father's house in John 14 is not heaven. There's no mention of heaven in that chapter. It's the same significance as in chapter 2 of John, the Father's house. And 1 Timothy 3, the church is the house of the living God. Ephesians 2, it's a dwelling place of God. But God's ultimate building is a city. I know a dear couple recently married. They are in the process of having a house built for them. But do you know anyone who has built a city? He just built a city. I mean, a city that can contain millions of people... This is God's building project. A city. So in the Old Testament, you have the temple and you have the city of Jerusalem surrounding the temple. The temple signifies the church as God's dwelling place. The city signifies the church as God's kingdom. 
So when we come into the church life, we'll have a sense of family, of being home, in the place the Lord prepared for us. And this is most precious. But we need to advance from house to city. In Revelation 21, the angel is there saying to John, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, John should fully expect to see a person. I'm going to show you the, the wife of the redeeming God. But then he was carried away in spirit to a high mountain and he saw the holy city, Jerusalem, descending from God. So the wife is a city. The new Jerusalem, the ultimate building, is a person. It's a corporate person who is also the kingdom. The bride, the wife, that indicates counterpart, that indicates eternal marriage, living happily forever after in the new heaven and the new earth with unending delight. But also, his wife is the kingdom in full development. So she's the city. If someone would insist on saying the new Jerusalem is a literal physical city, they're going to end up with, with such goofy ideas. How can God marry a city? Have you ever been in a wedding meeting where the bridegroom married a city? I invite you to my wedding. I will be marrying Phoenix on May 7th. I mean, it's just inconceivable. The city is a person. And the person is the kingdom. And the dwelling place of God. This is how it ends. And it's called the Holy City. Please keep this in mind as I refer again to Ephesians 1.4. God shows us to be holy. That is to be the same as He is in nature. So you can be part of the bride, wife, city. And the New Jerusalem is a composition of the sons of God. All the sons of God together form this corporate person. Connect that with Ephesians 1.5. We were predestinated unto sonship. So in eternity past, God is making this plan to have a wife city for the satisfaction of His Son so for this, he's going to need a universe, he will need earth, he will need human beings. A lot of things will have to happen. And then he realizes, I will need millions of people, and none of them exist yet, but I am God, I have foreknowledge, I know everything. I choose this one. She has no choice. 
I predestinate that one. He has no choice. They will be created. They will be born in time. They will be in a family. They will be in a country, etc., etc. But at the time appointed, the gospel will reach them. They'll be saved. I will shepherd them into my recovery. I will release the supply of ministry into them. And I'm going to make them my counterpart, the reality of my kingdom now. The Lord must have this reality now. So let's read through the points. And in the second point, I will address the matter of the, the universal deception. That's not an exaggeration. When the Father's eternal will is to build up the church upon Christ the Son as the rock. This is the will. Revelation 4.11 says, All things were created because of His will. God's will is what God wants. God wants a building that is also a person, the church. Two, God's building is the desire of God's heart. Whenever I read this expression, the desire of God's heart, my spiritual heart goes, it's just, it's just beating in such a active way. The desire of God's heart. Is there anyone, anyone you know, as you're sitting here, who has revealed to you the desire of his heart or her heart. That is exceedingly intimate and precious. To open up the depths of your being to someone you trust. You're about to disclose what's most in your being. And you just say, and this should happen even in a courtship, the brother should be a man. Take the lead. Be a man. And be a man. Give her room to respond. Move at her pace. Be a smart man. Not, not a dummy. Be a smart man. <laughs> and then at a certain point you say, I believe the Lord is maybe working on us to bring us together. That's why we're having this courtship. So I want you to know what I live for. What's in my heart. I know I have to live a normal human life, get married, be a dad, have a job, fulfill my responsibility. This is what's in my heart. I'm living for the Lord's interest on the earth, his move. I'm ready to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What's in my heart, above all things, is his wedding. I want my wedding to be for his. I want my marriage to be for his. And in a sense, he's taking the risk to share this. But he doesn't know yet, while he is sharing this, her heart is singing for joy. Oh, I cannot marry anyone else other than this kind of brother. We have the same heart. 
This settles the most crucial issue. You've got to talk about practical human things, since marriage is a practical human thing. But you settle this. The Lord, through the apostles, has made known the desire of his heart. And through the faithful ministry of the age, that revealed desire has been made clear to us. He wants to come back and get married. He wants to have a kingdom where he can carry out his heart's desire. So God's building is the desire of his heart and the goal of God's salvation. And now we come. And the Lord cover us all. What is the great deceit that has misled distracted and defrauded believers for nearly 2,000 years. It's the teaching that has a pagan source that the goal of God's salvation is heaven. It's heaven. I say repeatedly, I have the highest respect for Brother Billy Graham he was pure. He was faithful to what he knew. But the goal of the salvation he preached was heaven. And so they read this into John 14. In my Father's house are many abodes. I go to prepare a place for you. The Lord is going to heaven, He's a carpenter. He's preparing a condo for you. Some even believe all animals will be saved. If that's the case, I don't know what I'm going to do because in the 70s and 80s, I lived in an ark. Fifteen fish tanks in the house, rabbits increasing number in the backyard, quail, dogs having puppies. Am I going to have to live forever? in a condo in the sky with all of these animals. That doesn't sound glorious to me. And then they say he's coming back. That will be the Lord's coming. The Lord will come back, say, now I'm going to take you to heaven. Then these theologians, these are smart guys who've written hundreds of books. Then they say when the Lord comes back, he'll bring everybody with him to the kingdom. So that means your heavenly house was Motel 6 in the sky. You were just there. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. But in sharing this, we have to care for people because the first question they're going to ask, what about this loved one of mine who has passed away? Where is he now? Where is she now? Well, are you willing to hear the truth? I don't comfort people by lies. That's a deception. Paul, in the spirit, was carried away to the third heaven. And in the spirit, he visited paradise. He said, I heard things I can't speak. 
Then when he wrote Philippians, he said, if it were up to me, I would rather be there with the Lord. I would rather not be here. I would rather be there with the Lord. It's much better. Because I'm... And he didn't want a place. He wanted a person. And I realized when I'm there, I'm released from the old creation fallen body in the flesh. And the presence of the Lord is much more intimate. And so, when a beloved one dies, if some of you could hear what Brother Ed Marks shared at the memorial meeting for his son Joey, with Down syndrome, boy grew to be 34, just in one night, a strange thing happened. And he pointed out, Joey's in paradise. Then from Luke 16, an angel comes to guide that one there. And this one is with the Lord. Then, because we cannot be ultimately in the Lord's presence without a body, we have to be tripartite to be normal. So, I assure you, my parents person after person dear to me who died right now as I'm speaking this they're in paradise they are really having a delightful time to me this is enough the goal is in heaven but when that's everybody's goal God is going this way to build up the bridal city then the trend goes this way. Heaven, 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 heaven. I was assisting the Presbyterian minister whom I respect at a funeral. And he was speaking from John 14 about my father's house and the dwelling place. And he said, this doesn't really refer to heaven, but they don't know that. They don't know that. So for their comfort, I will use the scripture in this way. I realize, Dr. So-and-so, I respect you. I will never do that. I will never comfort a grieving person with a lie. I would say, I don't know where paradise is. I only know one thing. She's with the Lord. With the Lord. And we'll be resurrected. And we will see them again. In resurrection. So this is a major adjustment. That the Lord through brotherly brought to American Christianity. The goal is not heaven. It's God's building. The bridal wife, the new Jerusalem. Three, only the church built up according to the Lord's desire can be the stepping stone into the age of the kingdom. So the Lord needs a stepping stone, a place to land. Thus, for the sake of his coming back, the Lord needs the church to be built up. So I join others 
and watching the world situation. But the Lord can change the world situation in an instant. But He can't build up the church in an instant. So my focus is not on the outward things. It's, Lord, are the saints growing? And again and again, the faithful Lord, my wife and I are in the car, driving to work, driving to a meeting. We pray again and again for the growth of the body, for the growth of the saints. Lord, increase in all the saints. You must have the church built up. You cannot come back until you have the built up church because the built up church will be your bride. For whatever God is doing today in preaching the gospel, in edifying the saints, and in establishing churches is part of his building work. We have to do all these. These activities are part of God's main work, the work of building. We all need to be clear. If we're living in the reality of the kingdom, we will be clear. All of our gospel preaching, our helping the saints, the church life is for all for this. Five, we need the Lord to deliver us from natural and improper concepts of God's building and to usher us into a divine understanding of God's building. Well, what are some of the natural improper concepts? Well, organization is one. To build up a hierarchy, that's not building. Uh, forming natural relationships in the soul and calling that building is false. In 1978, while a turmoil was brewing under Max Rappaport, uh, the party is still alive, so I won't mention the name. Uh, a sister and other sisters were claiming direct revelation from the Lord, and they say, we are built up. We are built up. You sisters are not in the building. You're not in the flow. We're in the flow. We're built up. And when they would be in the meeting, they would sit in rank with the queen here and those closest to her and those farther away. In Memorial Day weekend, 1977, Brother Lee was having a conference in Anaheim. And in the midst of one of the messages, he stopped and he addressed all of these sisters in their order of hierarchy and corrected them and rebuked them and said, this cannot continue. And so outwardly, they complied. But inwardly, they didn't. And they continued their own exclusive spiritual conclave. Some of them went to see Brother Lee for fellowship. And he diagnosed the case. He said, this is cancer. They rejected it. So by rejecting it, they placed the Lord in this situation. I either preserve you or I preserve the church. 
So they were all cut out. Counterfeit building. Counterfeit. So we can't go into the details, but we have three proper definitions which need whole conferences to develop. God's building is the triune God wrought into us so that we may become his corporate expression. That's building. God's building is the mingling of God with man. The principle of God's building is that God builds himself into us and builds us into himself. John 14, 20. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. We need to know this. He's in the Father. We are in Him. Therefore, we are in the Father right now by being in Him. And He is in us as the Spirit. This is building. In John fourteen twenty three, the Lord said, If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make an abode with him. Here you are, loving the Lord. The triune God comes to you and says, I'm building my house. Paul refers to it in Ephesians 3. See, God's building is the enlargement, the expansion of the triune God, enabling God to express himself in a corporate way. Some critics, right away, they had a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, condemning this. This is heresy. Can God get bigger? Why don't you just pause and get an accurate understanding of what we're saying? God in himself is infinite. He cannot increase. He cannot be enlarged in himself. But what about Colossians 2.19? We hold the head... so that the body grows with the growth of God. Well, what is the growth of God? It can't be that God himself is growing, but God is growing in us. I don't think any one of us right now would stand up and say, my tripartite being is fully saturated with God. Every part of me. Lord, rapture me right now. No, we're all a work in process. So so God is growing in us. And as he grows in us, he's expressed in us. But in himself, he's not growing and he can't grow. But when he's entered into us as a seed, he doesn't remain a seed. The seed develops until our whole being is Christ as the reality of the kingdom. Six, the Lord's word in Matthew 16, 18, is the greatest prophecy in the Bible. Upon this rock, I will build my church. In his heavenly ministry, the ascended Christ is directing and managing the building up of his church. He says, my church. In Matthew 18, he says, the church. There's no name. Any religious entity, Christian entity, that has a name 
is not the church. It's a denomination. There are real believers there. It's not the church. The church has no name. So you start something and you put a name. You can call it the church. Christianity today will recognize you. You are a church in the religious sense. The Lord will say, that's not my church. You don't honor my name. And even your pastor will say, oh, I need to take care of my flock, my church. No, it belongs to you. Did you shed your blood to redeem them? Did you regenerate them? Are you living in them? And now, a little man from China comes to tell you the truth, and you don't have the courage to face the truth, so you fall into a racist accusation to say he's from Asia, he's under the influence of Oriental mysticism. I'll be very blunt. The dear Chinese-speaking saints can't do that. I can do this. This is your bias. If it were American theologian of European descent at Yale, you would celebrate him. But you're too proud to be helped by someone from another part of the earth and from another race. And I would say to them, you just watch out now. Because we have this burden. You just watch what God is going to do in the continent of Africa in the next 10 or 20 years. You just watch. We had a training there in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And we proclaimed this over every country. There are so many hungry people there, real believers there, who will devour the truth. And the Lord will be able to say, my church. Amen. Tell it to the church. Amen. Be as the stone for God's building. Christ is the foundation stone. The top stone. And the cornerstone. In him and through him we are becoming living stones to be built up as a spiritual house. I know two brothers. Chinese origin. They have an English name. Living stone. What a good name. So when I greet them, I can say, Brother Livingstone, I presume. <laughs> Some of you are too young to know the reference. Just check with an older saint. They'll tell you why they're, while they're laughing. Okay? Now we finish. The Lord's word about a city situated upon a mountain indicates that the kingdom people need the building. The light is not an individual believer. The church in Phoenix is a city. It's a city. The light is a corporate city built up as the one entity to shine over the people surrounding it. If we are divided, we are finished with the shining. In order to be a shining city, we must keep the oneness and remain one entity, a corporate body. Amen. So thank the Lord for his mercy. The burden has been released. 